I do think there is a thread in wanting to make people feel seen. I mean, that's what's going on with um, championing non-alcoholic drinks. And that's what's also going on with normalizing loneliness because it is normal. There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends. And Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs, and I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Hi friends, welcome to The Spritzing Hour, a brand sparkling new podcast where I'll be exploring the changing ways that food, drink, and our connections to each other are evolving. I'm your host, Claire Warner, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Julia Bainbridge, writer and creator of the Lonely Hour podcast and author of her brilliant new book, Good Drinks. In our chat, we discuss good drinks and bad and how drinking in general is changing in response to our evolving attitudes to health and well-being. We also take a look more broadly at the human condition and specifically loneliness and the irony of its taboo nature, given it's something we've all likely experienced. It's an insightful and thought-provoking chat, and we cover a lot of ground. So sit back, pour yourself a really good drink, and enjoy. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to have a lovely chat with us today about what I have titled Good Drinks and the Human Condition with your kind self. Um, (laughs) And yeah, to sort of like really explore and get stuck into not only your book, um, which is fabulous, um, but, you know, your experience of writing it, um, what inspired that book? um, Was it a particular something that happened in your life or was were you sort of really observing how drinking is changing in general um and then sort of more broadly looking at the human condition but you know predominantly around uh, connection togetherness and loneliness and of course covering your brilliant podcast the lonely hour so so yeah. that's really what we're going to look at today that title sounds like it should be the next phase of my work it sounds yes. you know <laughs> as the next phase going into academia and um <laughs> why not com- combine the two combine yeah. the good drinks and the loneliness uh factor um, something yeah <laughs> but I was just I was reading a book and I was reading around loneliness and, and uh I was reading about you know as I've mentioned in in some of the notes reading about this notion that alcohol is is so um integral to how we socialize um and and you know maybe a few years ago I would have read that and thought yes great that really feeds into my narrative having worked on you know multiple spirits brands but I found myself almost sort of wanting to counter argue argue the point that you know is alcohol that necessary and and are we really that uh, unable to connect socially without it um so so I was actually you know doing a lot of the reading your book thinking about loneliness thinking about how we socialize and um yeah and that kind of thinking is alcohol really necessary to our social lives? No, I mean, I don't think alcohol is necessary at all. I think, (laughs) I think a lot of people can't consume alcohol um, and are living perfectly fine lives. So they're proof of that. Right. I think uh, one of the pieces that you shared with me, uh, you, you might be referring to the point that the consumption of alcohol triggers the endorphin system and yes, and that kind of lowers anxiety and allows for the forming of bonds, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so, so alcohol being key to socializing. Yeah, I mean, um, no, I don't think that necessarily without alcohol, you're like sad and friendless. <laughs> I think, you <laughs> know, God. sure, uh, uh, alcohol is a great social aid, um, but simply socializing also has pod- positive effects on the brain and people can learn to build bonds without alcohol. And look, you know, for somebody who champions this, you know, alcohol-free cocktail space, who um, has removed alcohol from her own life, I am not 
anti-alcohol. I think it's mm. great. <laughs> and I, and I miss it sometimes, you know, I think as a writer, uh, you know, alcohol can unlock some things for me when it comes to writing. I think I stop myself from self-editing. I kind of dip mm. into places I, I wouldn't in my sober mind. And I'm, I can be sort of freer and looser on the page, I think. And, mm. um, sometimes that ends up, uh, in something that won't work, you know, if I was, yeah. if I was to use everything written under the influence. Um, but there are some things I can access in that place that are so poignant, um, and that I can kind of lift from that and, and weave into the work. Um, that's, um, I don't know that I can't necessarily in my, in my sober mind, that's a solitary act though. When you're talking about socializing, I, you know, mm -hmm. we, we call it a social lubricant for a reason. You know, it, it helps us let our hair down, so to speak. It does the same thing when we're together that it does for me, say, when I was writing. Um, so, like, for those people who have a healthy relationship with it, enjoy, you know? Like, I think, <laughs> yeah. um, I think uh, in this country, there are a lot of messages flying around about alcohol. The consumption of it is glamorized, but it's also moralized and stigmatized. Prohibition wasn't that long ago in the scheme of things. So, yeah. I get why we can be funny about it, but I think it's kind of okay. Um, I'm sorry, is, is the noise in the hallway? Is that coming no, through? No, can't hear it, no. Okay, so I get why we're funny about it, but I, I think it's kind of, I, I may be answering this in a way you didn't expect, but I think it's okay to embrace intoxication. I think <laughs> like, let's speak more plainly. I think cocktails are formulated in equal parts to be delicious and to elicit a buzz, right? But mm. But getting back to the point, alcohol is also a highly addictive substance and not everyone can manage it. I think if we look at the popularity of, of dry January, the argument can be made that it shows just how difficult it is to consume alcohol in a healthy way or with ease. You know, it's not abnormal to develop some kind of drinking problem that may not, you know, be technically categorized as an, as a alcohol use disorder, but like a drinking problem in the sense that, you know, you've been waiting for dry January so you can remove it and calm down and sort of, you know, <laughs> um, have a reset, right? And so yeah. it's become this welcome or needed pause. Um, but as for those people in the U.S. who have alcohol use disorder, it's an estimated 15 million and mm -hmm. more remain undiagnosed. And, and there are plenty of others who choose not to drink for other reasons. And while without data, I can't be sure, I would venture to guess that all of these people are not generally um, sadder than no. those who <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, don't, I don't imagine. It's a lot of people that are just at home, you know, alone. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as a concept, don't really agree with dry January. I, I never really have. I think that it, it, it encourages um, us to sort of like, it's very binary. It's like on or off, you know, and then you 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 do this month of kind of penance and then you you switch back on in February and you kind of really go for it, which, you know, is, is why I'm really... Um, I'm happy to see books like yours um, that really celebrate this this amazing new wave of of non-alcoholic, complex, delicious, interesting drinks that are you know obviously coming out of the US and there's a, a very um, developed scene here in the UK driven uh, in no small part by by um, Seedlip and and latterly yeah. Acorn. Um, so so what 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 You're was ahead the of us, I think. <laughs> the, the UK has been ahead of the states in this in this realm, but we're we're, yeah. we're making our own moves now. <laughs> you are, you are, you're catching up. There's no, there's yeah, not holding back. So, so what was it that really inspired you to take this journey a couple of years ago? Yeah, I guess one thing that um, comes to mind before I'll, I answer that is, you know, um, I'm, I mean, thank you for for seeing the book and appreciate appreciating it, excuse me. My hope is that in five to 10 years, there won't be a need for a book like this and that alcohol-free cocktails will um, be a chapter or will be a part of, you know, quote unquote, regular uh, over, overall drinks books, right? Mm. Um, but I think we're still at the point in the conversation where we need to to highlight these drinks. And and um, it, it was what was going on in the industry that inspired me. I mean, I, I again, a few years ago, removed alcohol from my life. Um, and, and this is, you know, for me, people don't drink for all kinds of reasons. For me, it, it definitely was reckoning with a complicated relationship with alcohol. So, mm -hmm. um, I removed it, but, uh, luckily I'm one of those people who can still, um, be out at bars and restaurants even early on and in, in my journey and my, I guess you could call it sobriety, although I don't use that term, which we could discuss later on, but, mm -hmm. um, but, 
I'm able to go out to bars and restaurants. I don't feel triggered. Um, So I was out at those spaces and searching for things to drink that um, weren't, you know, wasn't water and wasn't soda. And um, it was impossible, especially as somebody who is food and drink interested and looks for trends, you know, for her work, Mm -hmm. um, it was impossible to ignore the the newfound um, energy going into this category that there were thoughtful multiple component um, drinks with like, you know, different notes you could really pick apart, um, drinks that you could sip and and slowly drink, which I think is so key to their feeling adult and and for the drinker feeling um, a part of the experience because you can kind of keep pace with your friends who are drinking alcohol. These drinks were taking up real estate on beverage menus. They were given names um, and it was just really exciting. And I wanted to capture that. You know, I think I was really finding the things that I wanted to drink in bars too, like this yet, there weren't yet cookbooks that had capitalized on um, all of this innovation and experimentation. Um, And so, yeah, I wanted to, I got in my car and pounded the pavement and and cast a really wide net and talked to bartenders and chefs all over the country to, um, you know, tap the people whose job it is to make really good balanced beverages, no matter the alcohol content. Mm. I love the fact that you got in the car and just went, you know, traveled across the country, you know, on this sort of brilliant mission to, because I suppose, I don't know if, if there's a temptation to, um, you know, you could have called in the recipes, right. You could have, um, you could have just called up, you know, a lot of these bartenders and said, Hey, what, what's on your menu? What, what, what was the, what was the impetus to kind of get in the car and really go to these places? It's a privilege to be able to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, to have had the freedom to, um, uh, pay for all that gas, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, it was important to me that I make relationships with these people who quite frankly, whose, whose work I was going to be sharing, you know, who were giving me their ideas to put into this book. It was important to me to see the spaces and drink the drinks in the spaces they were meant to be served in. Um, because ultimately this book, yes, was going to be a cookbook and was going to have recipes, um, that people could make at home and enjoy these drinks in their own spaces. But I also hoped that it would act as a guidebook, meaning these are the places across the country you can go, um, and know that you can get a kind of next level alcohol-free drink. So, Mm. um, it was meant to be used, um, in that way as well. And I didn't feel comfortable putting my stamp on it and recommending, um, these locations, um, if I hadn't seen them myself, myself, Mm. excuse Mm -hmm. me. Um, and it was just fun. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's got and a little weird can, out there. Yeah, and you <laughs> can. Uh, the, 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 the great thing about ones, but <laughs> <laughs> so the great thing is that you can, you know, uh, go into these bars, have these drinks, and then get in the car and, and carry on on your journey, which is uh, obviously super unique, right? When you're writing about drinks and tasting drinks, and so that's a, that's yes. one benefit, I suppose. Um, yes, that actually, Ben Branson, um, you know, Seed Lips founder and CEO. I don't know the many titles um, that are involved in it. He was like, oh, you're doing a lot of drinking and driving this summer. <laughs> yes. All legal, all legal. Um, so the book's called Good Drinks. What was it that inspired that title? So I guess it's a bit gruff. <laughs> and that's why there's a long kind of Dr. Susian subtitle making sense of things. But, you know, there's so much anxiety over this endeavor, over what to call these drinks. And I just kind of wanted to squash it. You know, I just, they're just, they're, they're drinks. And I think it also allowed for a range of kinds of drinks to be included. Not all of what you see in the book are what um, some would consider alcohol-free cocktails per se. Um, And then I think about when people make plans with each other to get a drink, it's kind of assumed that that means an alcoholic one and that you're meeting in a bar. And I guess my intent was to subvert that a little Mm. bit. So for Mm. for all those reasons. Are you often asked um, what makes a bad drink, having titled your book in that way? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I definitely set myself up for, you know, if there were any bad reviews, they could have really gone with <laughs> making fun of the title. <laughs> good thing um, that hasn't been. <laughs> yes, good thing. Um, yeah, look, I mean, uh, I guess one way to think about this is is to look at my qualifications for for each drink. You know, why, why does um, each drink in the book deserve its it's uh, real estate. I think, you know, it had to be a level up from a fizzy lemonade or a uh, Shirley Temple. It had to do the work of fighting against the bad reputation this category has of the drinks being too sweet. Um, mm. And if sweetness was the prominent taste, there had to be something going on in the recipe that made that acceptable. It kind of had su- to surprise me or or um, the audience I felt I was writing for. It had to be listed on the menu. And then there's the relatively boring work of making sure there's a range of flavors and levels of labor involved. So, I mean, that's, that's more than what you're asking for. In some ways, I guess a bad drink could be the inverse of those things. But I uh, really, I think a bad drink lacks balance and inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. A, a bad drink makes the drinker feel uncared for. So, yeah. and I, overall, I, I think too, mindset's important here. Stop worrying about what it's supposed to taste like if it had alcohol in it just worry about whether or not it tastes good and if it can't stand on its own without alcohol then it's not a good drink Mm. 100% yeah we hate the word mocktail we're constantly battling here um, against the use of that because I think it really diminishes the experience Um, but it's just been such a catch-all for for so many years that it's it's a habit in a way to use it. it And look, I know for what it's worth, I know plenty of people who don't drink, who take no issue with that term. (laughs) I I definitely saw a lot of different um, stabs at this terminology when I was on the road. Mocktail is effective. You know, it's, it's simple. It rolls off the tongue. Everyone knows what it means. Mm. Um, But yeah, I I think my, I I repeat this too often because it's so good and so Jordana, but uh, my friend Jordana Rothman said that uh, menu nomenclature is its own thicket of awkwardness. I feel like I may have mentioned that to you before. Yeah. It's like alcohol-free cocktails, virgin cocktails, teetotalers, soft drinks, temperance drinks, zero-proof cocktails, zero ABV drinks. It's just, um, there's, there's, a whole list. I think Kemper English has been uh, cataloging every name he knows of on his website, Alcademics. You all can go see um, how long the list is. <laughs> yeah, but it's such an important part of the experience, isn't it? You know, the language that we use to make sure that, you, you know, that the customer doesn't feel um, less than or underserved in, in some way through, you know, childish or... Um, I don't know. Just the, the language is so important. It, it was an is an element of like non alcohol that I hadn't really considered when I came across from the from the beverage alcohol world. That you know the, the language that we use to describe the things that we eat and drink is is really loaded and um, and it, it does you know com- uh, it contributes to your experience when you're reading something on a menu. Not does not whether it tastes delicious, uh, sounds delicious, and that's something you want to drink. But does the language help you, uh, you know, elevate the experience in some way? Exactly. I mean, this is part of what the study of marketing is all about, right? It's like yeah. how the how the consumer uh, feels about a product based on um, how it's talked about um, mm. or its name. I mean, I think. Uh, it was Julia Momo say, I feel like who, you know, the now famous, at least in our circles, yeah. <laughs> spirit free manifesto that she wrote in 2017. I mean, she really got me thinking about this. It's yeah. I think that mocktail implies that the drink is a lesser version of the real thing, quote unquote, right. Which mm-hmm. is a cocktail with alcohol in it. And, and, you know, she was really agitating for a term that's more befitting the care and skill that goes into making these beverages. And, yeah. and I do think we need to collectively align on terminology that we really embrace, but, um, mm. but, uh, it's, it's hard to do that. Yeah. I, I, maybe, um, I think to the disappointment of some of my, um, peers, I sort of sidestep the whole issue. <laughs> <laughs> but you do talk about, um, alcohol free in the introduction of the book, which for me was really enlightening. I had no idea, uh, sort of background to that term. Um, and I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. I'm literally looking at the PDF of my book because <laughs> there yeah. was so much digging into uh, papers oh, and acts and whatnot. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a small, it's a one page uh, on um, 
I feel like it's a, it's a bigger piece, to be honest, because it really feels like you've went digging for, uh, you know, into the history books and a real piece of investigative journalism around this, this notion of what alcohol-free means and that it's, yeah. it's really down to sort of taxation and the ability to, um, yeah, monetize. Yeah, okay. Yes, you're jogging my memory now. Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> okay. you know, yeah, I think first, as I said, very few of us consume zero alcohol, right? There are trace amounts found in orange juices and breads, for example. So I guess this term alcohol-free is a bit of a misnomer. But anyway, yes, what U.S. Congress considers alcoholic are beverages that measure at 0.5% ABV and above. Um, so, so beer and wine labeled non-alcoholic as well as kombucha that's available for purchase by, you know, minors at grocery stores, that all has to come in below 0.5 ABV. Um, and yes, there are higher taxes on those products that are considered to be alcoholic. And I really, I wanted to find out why this number, I read, uh, you know, all sorts of acts and papers. And as far as I can tell, there's really no clear scientific basis for 0.5 ABV being the line of demarcation. And some kombucha brewers who consider this number to be painfully outdated or lobbying to raise the taxation point for kombucha from 0.5 to 1.25, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that act is like still sitting with Congress. There's been a lot else to focus on this year. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, if it were possible to settle on like a non-intoxicating demarcation, that would, in my opinion, make a lot more sense than non-alcoholic, but it, that's not possible, right? So um, I think ultimately I thought, Okay, 0.5 ABV is the law. That's what's going to govern this book. Um, in other yeah. words, even lightly fermented drinks didn't make the cut. Right, right. I just have to give a shout Which out to... Um, there are so many delicious lightly fermented drinks. I know, I know. <laughs> so, and I really so. spent like months playing around with tapache, but it just, it was too, uh, just, there's too much room for that ABV level going mm. up depending on your environment and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Stu and I love a tapache, don't we, Stu? Big, big fans, big fans. Oh, me. And I have to give a shout out to Hannah Crum, who's the president and co-founder of Kombucha Brewers International, who, who you mentioned in yeah. the book, uh, Julia, which not only is she doing incredibly important work, but I just have to give her a shout out for her brilliantly um, entitled... Um, Healthcare Act, which is keeping our manufacturers from being unfairly taxed while championing Health Act, otherwise kombucha. <laughs> I just <Yeah>. laughed. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning her. Yes, she she the, the that that is the act I was talking about that's sitting with Congress and um or the bill, if you will. Um uh, and she's one of the major forces behind it. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's just so much uh, good stuff in the book. So what, what was your sort of biggest learning or, or maybe biggest surprise to you when you were, when you were writing or researching the book? Um, liquid is difficult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, um, as somebody who, uh, you know, this book, as I said, is very much a compendium. I am leaning on the work of those people who are experts. I am not myself a recipe developer and certainly not in the beverage space. I now, you know, through testing these so many times have some, um, am equipped with some, a little more skill, I think, and knowledge and, and who knows what will happen in the future. But um, I have so much more respect for bartenders now than I did before. And I already did have a lot of respect as, as somebody who really values the hospitality industry. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, liquid is, is very hard <laughs> to work yeah. with, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes um, it makes you realize how easy alcohol is to to manipulate, right? Um, when you take alcohol out of the equation, uh, flavor, extraction, stability, uh, texture, depth, complexity—all those things—you have to work super hard to find without the benefit of or, or the uh, the ease of use of alcohol. So, yeah, kudos to the bartenders who are doing it—you know, day in and day out in their bars without. Um, you know, the benefit of having labs and things like that to keep what they make stable and consistent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hard slog to make good drinks taste delicious consistently well across a bar night in, night out. You really have to know a lot about ingredients. I mean, you really have to be a good cook, essentially. Um, so to get at 
bitterness and some of the bracing qualities we like, uh, you know, about alcohol, let's say. Um, you've got to know about gentian root. You've got to know how to manipulate it. Um, and then there are, you know, varying levels and kinds of bitterness and and there's so many places you could go but it's vast that can be intimidating right but a mm. lot of people who who I are the best at this really are um geeks are very studied mm. you know mm. um so yeah much much respect and sometimes then, uh, I think you know we mm. do a disservice to these drinks by comparing them to alcohol I know you said yeah know, getting at texture, et cetera, um, without alcohol. And it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't be trying to achieve all of the things we get in an alcoholic drink in a non-alcoholic context. I mean, alcohol is not present here. It's going to be different and that's okay. But I guess the reason why we try to is that, you know, those cocktails, um, you know, the ones with alcohol in it just are so pleasing. They hit all Mm. these different notes for us. And so Mm. that's what we're after. Yeah, I agree. I think it's we're very passionate about you know not saying that Seedlip is a non-alcoholic gin and that Acorn is a range of non-alcoholic aperitifs and that we were inspired by vermouth and amari. But you know these drinks offer something different. You know it's that familiarity of um, you know what to do with a distilled. Spirit, um, in the case of Seedlip, non-alcoholic distilled spirit, it's the familiarity of knowing how to use, you know, vermouths and damaris, but the freedom that comes with um, being able to use our products in a variety of ways because they're not alcoholic and they are, you know, super delicious and very complex. And for us, it's really important that you don't um, set our customers or consumers up with the expectation that they're going to taste something exactly the same because, of course, as you mentioned, it, it, it cannot and won't be. So yeah, I think you position those drinks really smartly. I mean, effectively and, and with integrity. So mm. Thank you. So, um, so we've jumped ahead to like get into the the good drinks chat, but you know, I'm I'm interested to talk a little bit about you know your background because you've been working in food and drink writing for, for some time now. Um, how how did you get into that lovely delicious world? Oh, I think what led me into, I mean, how do I break that down? What I majored in in college. <laughs> I, <was laughs> oh, just, you go, <laughs> um, I mean, I studied journalism and anthropology. And I think, you know, those two things ultimately did go together. I think what, what led me into a career writing about food was not necessarily an interest in the food itself, although there is that too. It was more of an anthropological interest in food as a lens through which to look at identity. You know, we can mm. learn so much about people from what they eat and how they eat it, um, also what they don't eat, right? What's taboo. Um, But food can also be othering and those whose cultures or tastes don't fit inside the mainstream can feel alienated. So I think ultimately um, my journalistic work became about inviting people in, you know? Mm. So sort of tracking and celebrating innovation in this world of alcohol-free beverages, you know, the mission Um, being to bring those who don't drink alcohol and thus have maybe felt marginalized in ways um, into the drinking culture at large. Um, Mm. And it's, it's, I've been able to do that because I'm just reflecting what's happening. You know, Mm -hmm. this is what you all um, and those in the hospitality realm have been um, turning towards. So which is a sort of neat segue thank you for bringing us into the conversation around your podcast which is also about you know leaning in bringing people in you know embracing this notion uh that that loneliness is part of the human condition um and your podcast is called the lonely hour and um you know it, it might seem from the outside that you know going from being this celebrated food and drink writer and then setting up the Lonely Hour podcast might not necessarily be very well connected. So what was the sort of journey into creating the the podcast? Well, yeah, I don't have like a clean path and I I have lots of kind, lots of disparate uh, interests that I'm, I feel lucky to be able to pursue. Um, I guess you could say, yeah, that after looking at how people gather uh, at the very beginning, I turned to kind of how they don't. Mm. (laughs) Um, uh, I do think there is a thread in wanting to make people feel seen. I mean, that's what's going on with um, championing non-alcoholic drinks. And that's what's also going on with um, 
normalizing loneliness because it is normal. So, you know, I think uh, what, why, it's a strange paradox that loneliness is endemic to being human and yet it's taboo mm. in our culture. So I think driven by that, um, I launched the Lonely Hour, which by the way, um, was not inspired by the Sam Smith song, but by Sarah Vaughn, who's one of my favorite all-time singers and everybody should go listen to the Lonely Hour by Sarah Vaughn. But Ooh, yes. um um, yeah, I started it in 2016. This, you know, um, the mission was to destigmatize loneliness. You know, could I show how, and, and this is everyday loneliness. So, you know, maybe we'll get into there's, you know, I understand, um, I, I wouldn't fight with Dr. Vivek Murthy on loneliness being an epidemic and on mm. their, you know, being, um, sort of that chronic loneliness is a problem. But if I'm if I'm looking at the loneliness that's just part of the human experience, you know, the loneliness mm-hmm. that we all feel at times, could I show how entirely normal that is, you know, through storytelling? Um, could I put this big thing into small packages, meaning episodes? And could there even be joy and humor in the mix as is true to life? You know, I think mm. sometimes, as much as I wanted lonely to be in the title, because I think, again, it's, there's a taboo around that feeling around that word. And I wanted to put it front and center. Um, there is, um, it's, it's not a big bummer of a show. Sometimes I feel like no. the title works against my, you know, mission. Like it's, um, is funny, you know, and there are, there are ups and downs and all around in each guest's narrative arc. So, you know, this is, this is what I'm trying to do, but, you know, as I alluded to acceptance of loneliness as part of the human condition doesn't mean um, that chronic loneliness isn't an issue or that fraying social bonds um, don't need attention. I mean, in the years since I started investigating this topic, um, Cigna, BBC, and Kaiser published revealing loneliness studies. You have a loneliness minister. Um, mm. I am concerned too about the ways in which COVID might worsen what Murthy refers to as the social recession. Mm. And even before the pandemic arrived, um, more and more people around me were joining the economy of, of freelancers and gig workers. You know, more people were living alone than ever before in human history our arbiters of meaning are changing as, you know, union and church and club memberships decline. I'm Mm. sure you can hear that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll hold for a second. (laughs) What is it? It sounds like a... It's a a rolling bin of sorts again. Oh, right. Okay. Here, I think they're um, carrying something down the hallway. Um, So, yeah, I mean union church and club memberships are on the decline and what's replacing them, right? You know, Mm -hmm. we have greater, or we did before the pandemic hit greater geographic mobility, but we really, I think we yearn for community and a daily sense of mattering to others. And the the internet, which is isolating itself, can't be our only social safety net. So I just think all in all, I guess we, we belong to very little today and that, that, is, you know, dangerous um, for a species hardwired for connection. So I see, you know, I think there's the, the show has one particular mission, but since kind of studying, if you will, this topic, I'm learning it's more complex and, um, and, and might there be other projects that I want to do in this space that, that attend to needs, you know, might there be a way to address the quote unquote problem of loneliness or a certain kind of loneliness when the show very much exists to um, not put the loneliness that's part of all of our lives sometimes in the problem box. Mm -hmm. Is that confusing? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, I think you you, you talked about two uh, different types of loneliness and and I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on some of the differences between, you know, chronic loneliness versus just the everyday kind that, that, that many of us have experienced. Yeah, I mean, here is where I would ha- I would punt you to some of the cognitive neuroscientists or you know people mm-hmm. who are really in the field studying it. But you know, this a prolonged um, sort of stress state, which is what our body goes into um, 
when we're lonely, if that goes on for too long, it can really wreak havoc on the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point exactly, you know, a, a doctor or, you know, whoever who's more in the know than I would deem that loneliness has turned chronic, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, there's there's no denying that that loneliness is part of the mixed bag of what it is to be human. It's just, um, I, I do think that there are, you know, things about modern life that, um, and, and, there is this sort of increasing sense of loneliness that has been um, driven by some of the ways in which we are living that mm-hmm. I think we could do well to rethink. Um, and and then, yes, there's also when this, this loneliness gets prolonged, it can really have um, health effects, mm-hmm. negative health effects. But yeah, I'm just, it's a... Uh, I, I should give you a reading list. I'll punt you to those. Oh, more yes. But they exist. Um, mm. it, it's interesting because, you know, when you think of loneliness, it, it feels as though it's as old as humanity itself. Um, but, you know, just a bit of reading around the topic and a really great article called The History of Loneliness, which I'm sure you've seen and uh, I can uh, share with our listeners. But um, it, it's actually a relatively modern word um, and was really used to... Uh, sort of explain ban- almost being banished away from, you know, the warmth of the fire or, or your neighbours. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we, we now live in, in incredibly sort of, um, you know, dense urban centres. Um, we, we're, we're probably, um, in fact, we are defined as an urban species these days, um, I think since 2010. So it, it's surprising to me that, you know, we are biologically hardwired for connection and yet we we put up these sort of barriers but between ourselves even though biologically we we want to be connected to one another's one another excuse me and I so I don't know if you if you've got any sort of knowledge or what what your podcast has taught you about some of the reasons why perhaps we we want to live more disconnected lives I don't know that we want to live more disconnected lives I think that um I do think that there, again, are these um, ways in which we're living that this is something else I've learned about the study of, of chronic loneliness or sort of the way loneliness operates is that like once you're in that state, you you are more vigilant, you start to um, against you. I mean, I think depression can operate this way too. And you do tend to then um, push people out and isolate. It just, it's sort of like this, this cycle, right? Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's one thing I've learned, but I don't know. I mean, you talked about that history of loneliness. The the word is relatively modern. I mean, the word may be new, but the phenomenon is not. Mm. Yeah, maybe we should um, wake up to our desire to live in communes. Um, if, if we have put up these walls for whatever reason, which, you know, um, I can't answer that question in a satisfying way, um, <laughs> but it's a very good question you ask. Um, but, you know, for most of history, we did live in communities, which were groups of like 20 or 30 people. You know, we worked together, cooked communal meals. We lived and died around each other. And it's only very late on in history that, you know, we live in condos. We commute to work in offices with people whose values we don't share. You know, we're eating for one. Uh, mm. I think we really do. We, we crave communal living again, even if we can't quite put our finger on it. And it might do us some good to rethink our social setups. And um, why are we living this way? Capitalism, you know, I don't know. Mm, like it's yeah. yeah. Work, you know, that led us here. I think, you know, um, we... Um, we, we, we work, you know, to, to, to live. Yes. But, but also, um, to succeed, you know, if, I don't know if that's, it's money, fame, power, whatever, you know, we hope Mm -hmm. that, um, that will make us less lonely, you know, um, we want to attract other people to us to ensure we won't be alone by kind of showing off our successes, but we work so hard to get them that we never get the opportunity, (laughs) you know? So, um, I, yeah, I think communal living is really about, you know, making a commitment to looking after one another. And, and, um, as Alain de Botton says, you won't really care to get ahead. Um, if, if you're part of that community where you have a daily sense of mattering, it's funny. I've been hearing this word commune more and more from friends of mine during this time when we're in this pandemic, um, 
I, I is that just, where we're going to end up? Do you think, or, or going know. going back to the communes? I, I don't know, but I, I just yes, of course, you know, that's sort of a dirty word, and we have all these associations. But I, I think it would be worth thinking about. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think that we, um, we, we, there's something almost I don't know, community connection. Um, you know, wanting to be with other people is is so um, you know part of our makeup, and it's I don't know maybe it's the speed of um, you know how how the world is speeding up, and you know access to the internet and all those things just really do sort of drive a wedge between our very basic desires to to connect with one another. Yeah. Um, I guess I think, you know, when I was back to your piece, you know, I, I, I know I'm saying a lot of things that seem to count, cancel each other out or, or not fit together. I mean, I think I absolutely agree with the author that the drive to cure loneliness oversimplifies things, right? Mm-hmm. And it's modern meaning. I think if the cliff notes, at least of, of what I've studied so far on this and and, um, you know, be kind because I'm still on my journey in terms of you know <laughs> understanding how all this functions. But like, look, you know, one, it's it's important to pay attention to the structures that got us to this disconnected place. Right. Yeah. And yeah. how can we challenge cultural norms like our placement of value on individualism and interdependence? Uh, sorry, independence, rather. Mm-hmm. Our definition of success is the p- pursuit of power and, and wealth. You know, how. Um, might we reorganize the ways in which we live and work? Um, how might we promote community building practices? Um, but at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that loneliness is, yes, a profoundly human experience, and there needn't be a cure for it. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to pathologize the everyday kind of loneliness that we all experience. And I guess one other thing I've learned on the show um, and I'm, I don't know if you hear that again. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry for this. <laughs> Not Another thing I've learned on the show that feels like it's worth bringing in now is that um, we might do well to reestablish the other friendships we've always had as humans. And bear with me, this is something that David White, the great poet and philosopher, um, turned me on to. I mean, he said, mm-hmm. he said, I think one that, one of the difficulties of today is that we've put all of our eggs in one basket in that, um, you know, we're, we're trying to hold the conversation, which I think he, he uses to mean, you know, we, to, to connect um, simply through human forms. And yet throughout our evolution as human beings, we've always held a conversation with a multiplicity of qualities with, with, you know, and here's where he gets very poetic, you know, the blue in the sky or the sound of an owl in the evening. Um, uh, you know, it's very strange. He thinks that we've now defined the fact that you're um, just not say in conversation with another human being as being alone. You're not alone, actually. You're just not paying attention to all of these other thousands of qualities that we've actually co-evolved with over the thousands of years. So one of the reasons we were lonely is that we've forgotten um, that we have this friendship with the ground, this friendship with mm-hmm. our bodies, you know, um, mm-hmm. that this friendship with the way we respond to the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're obviously not very sure passionate. Where to go from there, but it's but no, just no, no. Like it's mean, worth sharing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's really. I think it's an important point as in within the conversation around loneliness, in that. Uh, you know, your 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 brain quietens down, um, and you have less rumination when you and less worry and less stress when you are in the natural world. So there is something to be reminded of when uh, you're you're perhaps feeling you know the everyday loneliness that um, that actually being within nature can can offer some some respite from those feelings, um, and that again, as you mentioned, you know we've kind of forgotten that that nature can be used in that way. Um, not that not that nature's just out there waiting for us to kind of go for a walk and, and use it, but but that there is this uh, relationship that we have with the natural world that we seem to be um, you know growing growing very quickly away from, and, and perhaps that also explains why we we use nature in the way that we do, but. With a with a I greater, go all ahead. the more important, yeah. you know, as as we're wary of and and we'll continue to be wary of gathering with one another. It may be all the more important to to highlight these other 
friendships, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that we can have. I mean, this is much the point of uh, not not the pandemic part um, and and spreading a virus, but uh, this um, this sort of finding connection in nature is is much of the point of Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, which is funny that you know it's called How to Do Nothing because really um, you're doing something. You're going out into the wilderness and and looking at things and communing with nature, but. Um, uh, I think that she's speaking to the fact that we we in this in this culture where all time must be spent productively, <laughs> and I guess productively meaning in something you can show for it in terms of money or something. Um, uh, yeah, that that it's you're not. She's sort of poking fun that we would call. Uh, anything other than that doing nothing right yeah yeah I mean when we talk to people you know about the benefits of nature of um and you know very often we get I get people say to me I went for a walk and you know I didn't get the feeling that I was expecting to feel um you know again sort of like this idea of going out into nature and that it needs to produce you know, it needs to do something for you. And just the very act of doing nothing in nature is what its purpose is there for, right? You know, it's, don't expect it to be the silver bullet. It's, it's not, you know, I think we, we expect a lot from, you know, these very simple acts. And, um, and I think it comes back to this desires for, for everything to be very productive. I must go for a walk and that is a productive use of my time as opposed to the simplicity and the gentleness of just going for a walk for the sake of going for a walk, right? You have now provided a great transition back to drinks because I think that's absolutely <laughs> the education that's still required, at least here in the States, um, as to why, say, a bottle of seed lip should cost what it does. We still have an issue. Uh, you know, we place value on the buzz. So yeah. why <laughs> mm. should something that doesn't give you that uh, cost? Right. So, yeah, yeah we're, we're in, we are always looking for what's what we get out of something um, in. But but maybe we need to reframe the, the mm. what we're getting. Right. Um, yeah. So in, in the case of the non-alcoholic drinks, we're, we're getting a culinary experience and that that has value. Um, mm. in and of itself right yes exactly uh, and and that brings me sort of neatly back to you know the role of good drinks and of togetherness and connection and and do you see um you know the value of non-alcoholic drinks or good drinks in in helping to bring more people together yeah I mean I look we're um heavily socialized for drinking to be the primary social activity um and I think it's a good one, right? If we go to a museum together or play soccer, like there's, there are distractions. We're focused on something else. When you're drinking, uh, you have this sort of prop, uh, this thing around which you gather and otherwise um, a, a person you're looking at. And, and um, so, so there's not much distraction. It's, um, it really is conducive to just simple conversation. Um, so, and, and does that drink have to be alcoholic? Uh, no, you know. Oh, just has to be good. Yeah. <laughs> just has to be a good drink. Um, so just wrapping up now, Julia, um, what, what's next for you? What's, what's well, I suppose, like a little rest maybe over the Christmas or holiday period? Um, yeah, what, what does next year look like for you? Well, next year, well, I mean, I think, I think I'll continue to follow um, this movement, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I... I'm wanting to go back to school, actually, and I, I don't want to say much more about that for fear I won't get in. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm only applying to a few highly competitive schools uh, and don't have the traditional experience required for this particular degree, but it doesn't not have to do with, um, with uh, formalizing my knowledge around this loneliness stuff we're talking about, so maybe I can become down the line, uh, you know, a more informed um voice on the topic but uh yes I mean I think you know that and and also with this degree I would ultimately be hoping to take the kinds of conversations I've been having publicly into another mm-hmm. realm where they can be ongoing and more directly um impactful um but in the immediate next hopefully this happens next year that I can see my friends <laughs> I, I really hope that's what's truly next for me and us all <laughs> yeah yeah what about you 
Yeah, same. Um, yeah, the, the vaccine's just rolling out here. So we're hoping to uh, be able to get back to relative normality at some point next year and to hopefully rush out into all of the bars and restaurants um, and hope that, um, you know, some of them are still there because, of course, you know, many of them, unfortunately, sadly won't be after this. But right. Um, but we will absolutely patronize all of the ones that are open um, and, yeah, get back out and start, you know, eating and drinking with wild abandon. I hope um, so. But, you know, I mean, at least here, not to be a downer, but, you know, just as the vaccine is arriving, we are facing grueling numbers, you know. Yeah. So I just think, uh, you know, a friend of mine who's an ER nurse at Stanford texted me just last night saying, um, you know, sort of show this, there's this paradox. She's right. I, I just signed up to get a vaccine, but today feels so different. Our ICU numbers have tripled. We're opening mm-hmm. up other units to help. It's, it's really not good. So, um, you know, yeah. we, and we don't group with anyone. We don't know the lasting effects of this. And at this point, only just over half of the American population has said it will take a vaccine, you know? So, oh, gosh. um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, I think you know, the news of the vaccine has been a double edged sword in, in many respects in that people um, almost have relaxed a little bit. And, um, you know, our numbers have also shot up. So we're in tier three now um, and hospitality has had to close again. So, yeah, it seems to be um, the nightmare that uh, that continues. Right. So um, my final question um, is uh, maybe linked to our, our, our conversation that we just had, but if you could have a spritz with anybody alive or dead, who would that person be? Oh, any of the truly, I, I just teared up a little bit, actually, just thinking about this answer, <laughs> excuse me, um, any of the truly wonderful grandparents I was lucky enough to call mine. Um, My mother's father, uh, Dr. Vernon Mountcastle, for whom I'm named, my middle name is Vernon. (laughs) And uh, he he was an internationally renowned neuroscientist. We were very close and I would really want to hear what he thought about my work now that I'm really beginning to find my purpose in it. And his wife, Nancy, was probably my favorite person. I I wish... um, I wish, you know, we, we could have a spritz and she could see, see that I'm in love. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I'm, I guess my answer is a little cheesy, but I I wish I could watch her smile at my partner, you know, or like watch them have a warm private conversation off in a corner of the house somewhere. I guess that means I'm drinking my spritz alone in that case. That's fine. (laughs) Or, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, or, or my father's father, John Bainbridge, was was my other favorite person, a true New Yorker. Man, what fun it would be to meet him in the city for a drink. Also a true gentleman and that he treated everyone with dignity, um, a model of good etiquette, which in its purest form is is really about putting those around you at ease. You know, um, mm-hmm. I miss him. I miss all of them so much. So any one of them I would take. <laughs> mm, what a beautiful answer. Really beautiful. And I'm sure they would all be incredibly proud of you. Um, oh. Julia, where can we read or hear more from you? Where can our audience go to find out more? I'm Julia Bainbridge pretty much everywhere. So um, juliabainbridge.com is where I um, put a lot of my clips. Uh, I'm Julia Bainbridge on Instagram where um, I'm sharing I don't know, musings from daily life as well as new podcast episodes and drinks and products I'm tasting through. I just, I have a number of bottles I'm staring at across the apartment that I have yet to taste through and I'm going to be um, sort of whittling them down to my favorites and sharing that out. So lots lots happening uh, over on that platform. Uh, and then The Lonely Hour, of course, thelonelyhour.com. Of course, when I highly recommend it. It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant listen. Um, Juliet Bainbridge, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, such an enlightening and um, sort of moving deep conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>